chapter 1. Now you can fire it up again. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 1. I'd like you to look beginning in verse 16 of Second Peter 1, verse 16. Where Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter is recollecting an experience that he had with the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he gives us enough information in this passage to know what it was. He and James and John had gone with Jesus to the top of the mountain, and there, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw the Lord Jesus kind of glorified in their, in their midst, and they were awestruck. And you remember Peter was quick to say, we need to build tents and booths and just kind of dwell here and hang out here. This is so cool. And um, in the midst of that, a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And, And Peter and James and John had that very unique experience of seeing Christ glorified before their eyes and hearing a voice from heaven affirm who he is, who he was, and give them that assurance. We had, he says, the word made more sure uh, when we had this thing happen before our eyes. But then Peter kind of makes a generalization from this experience. And that is found in verses 20 and 21 when he says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, he uses two terms in here that he's using uh, somewhat generally. First of all, he was referring originally to that specific experience on the mountaintop, but now he uses two words, scripture and prophecy, that have their more general meaning. For Peter, the scripture was all the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament was in the process of being written, and Peter acknowledges that some of Paul's writings were already being recognized as having scriptural authority. But for Peter, the scriptures were what we call Genesis through Malachi. They were those 39 books in our Old Testament, and they encompass what we call the Old Testament. That was the scripture for Peter. 
uh, the the embodiment of God's revelation to man through words. And then he says, no prophecy of Scripture. The word prophecy here is a general reference. We oftentimes think of it as future-telling, but prophecy in its most basic form is simply forth-telling or proclamation. But it has with it the idea that God is behind it. And so Peter is saying, understand that no prophecy of Scripture, no forth-telling of God's writings. So, so here he's telling us that all of Scripture is, is the announcement of God to human beings. And he says a couple of things about the Scriptures. And I think this is relevant for us to understand in our study of Genesis and also in our study of how Genesis uh, interprets and applies in the contemporary scientific environment that we're faced with. No scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was (coughs) ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is Peter's understanding of the Bible. And, and we need to get this. First of all, he says, Bible was... This is a parenthesis. When I'm speaking, it's a little different from when I'm writing. You can't see the, the parentheses. But first of all, the Bible was written by 40 different authors, at least over 1,600 years. Now, it encompasses much more time than that, but Moses wrote approximately a thousand years or so before Christ, and there was a hundred years of the New Testament era, so 16, or fifteen hundred years before Christ, a hundred years of the New Testament, so sixteen hundred years, forty different writers. And what he says is not one of these individuals ever sat down to write scripture like you and I would write a letter. Or a, or a note card to someone, or a thank you note, or a, a research paper. In other words, none of them ever just said, oh, I think I'll just write out some of my thoughts today, and they turned out to be the Bible. You know, no one ever did that out of human motivation. It did not arise from within themselves like that, with a purely natural motive. Moses had his hands full with the Israelites in the wilderness. He had plenty to do. He never said, oh, I think I should put down in, in words uh, our kind of our history and our heritage and all the things that have happened to us so that they'll know and understand what we're talking about out here. He, he never did that. <coughs> he wrote because he was compelled by the Spirit of God to put certain things down on paper. That was what motivated every single biblical writer. That's what Peter's saying. They were compelled by God to do this. They were motivated by Him. They were driven by Him. Now, I don't know exactly how that came. It may have felt to them like they were going to write a letter. I don't know. But what I do know is, Peter says, according to inspiration, the Holy Spirit was stirring this up within their heart to put these things down 
on paper. That is the origin of the Scripture. God moved men to write. And then he says, what they wrote was not of their own interpretation or their own opinion. The word interpretation here literally means to untie or to release. And metaphorically, speaking of the meaning of Scripture, it means to unwrap the meaning or untie it, to to bring it out so that we can all see it. And what the Bible plainly says is that human beings cannot do that on their own. That the, the authors who wrote the Scripture did not twist it by their own ideas or their own um, experience and culture or their own time. Now, they wrote within a context of culture, but what I'm saying is they did not enculturate the Scriptures with ideas that were just for that moment. It wasn't their own opinions that were incorporated in Scripture. The Scriptures were recorded in such a way that they were the plain-spoken Word of God preserved by the Holy Spirit for the benefit of all human beings of all times. (coughs) You and I must recognize, when we come to the Scripture, that even though it is written in certain languages, Hebrew and Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, and even though it is written in a cultural milieu of the Middle East and the Semitic peoples and, and Hebrew people and some Greek influence in the New Testament, etc., even though these things are true, the Bible transcends all culture, all time, and all language with its message. It is God's transcendent truth for all human beings everywhere, in all places, at all times. Peter wants us to know that neither the writers influenced its shades of meaning, nor can we apply to it our own shades of meaning. It's not for one's own interpretation. It has a meaning all of its own that should be plain and simple and obvious. The Bible was not written for Greek and Hebrew scholars. It was written for ordinary people, who at that time happened to speak Hebrew and then Greek. But it was not written for people who were Greek and Hebrew scholars. It was written for the common man. The language of the New Testament is not the language of Plato or Aristotle or the, the, the great uh, Greek poets. The language of the New Testament is Koine Greek, which is common Greek. It was the trade language. It was the ordinary, everyday language that everyone could use in common, even though the Jews spoke Aramaic and the Romans spoke Latin and there were other languages around. If you wanted everybody to understand what you meant, you could use the common Greek. And that was the ordinary everyday language. And God used this language to incorporate the New Testament and the Hebrew of the Old Testament so that the ordinary person could understand the meaning. 
And when we today have our translations, I want you to know they're pretty good. So that when you have the Bible in English, if you have a good translation, such as a New American Standard Bible, or a New International Version, or an English uh, Standard Version, or a New King James Bible, uh, emphasis on new there, uh, that was just a, a marketing gimmick to compete with the New American Standard Bible. They're virtually identical in translation. And if you happen to have one of those particular translations in English, you have an incredibly good translation of what the original languages said. So much so that when my wife and I were studying Greek together, sometimes we would sit down and do our Greek homework together and we would be doing translation. And after working through a passage of translation, we would open our New American Standard Bible to check it. And I cannot tell you how many times the New American Standard Bible read virtually identical to our translation of the original Greek verbatim. It was amazing how frequently that was true. It gave me great confidence in the translations we have of Scripture. What's the point of all of this? The point I want you to know is, if you have a reasonably good translation of the Bible, in the language that you understand, and you, you use that daily as your Bible for reading, you are going to understand 95% of everything that's in there just the way it's written. It was written to be understood at face value. You have heard me say before, but it's one of my favorite quotes, so I'm going to repeat it. Uh, it was D.L. Moody who said, Read your Bible. It will shed light on your commentaries. <clears throat> you need to be aware of the footnotes in your Bible that are not part of Scripture. You need to be aware of the commentaries. You need to be aware of fanciful interpretation and ideas that take us far afield from the plain meaning of Scripture. <clears throat> Some people say to me, I, can't, I read the Bible and I don't understand it, so I get frustrated I quit reading. I can't understand the Bible. It's too hard. And my question is, can you understand the newspaper? Do you read the sports section? Does that make sense to you? Can you read the editorials and know what they're talking about? Do you read novels? Can you read your favorite magazine, whatever it is, Times Magazine, Women's Day, U.S. News, I don't know, what do you read? Does that make sense? Can you read the cereal box at breakfast? Does it make sense to you? If you can read those things with understanding, you should be able to read the Bible with understanding. It should make sense. It's not supposed to be hard. In fact, if you really don't understand anything you, you read, and I've had people say to me, you know, I read and it's just like, it, it should all be still in Greek because I can't understand a word of it. Then my very loving but very strong encouragement is for you to find out, get before God and check to see if you're born again. Make sure you're saved. Because if you're born again and you have the Spirit of God living in you, you have the teacher, the author of Scripture resident in your own person. You should have His help and be able to understand what the Scripture means. 
And if you do that test and you find out that you really have turned from your sin and turned to Christ and you are really born again, then the next question you need to ask is, am I willing to obey what God shows me? Because if you're tolerating sin in your life and you are disobedient to God and you're in rebellion, you don't want to do what He says, the Scripture is very plain that He is not going to bother to talk to you until you're ready to listen. He has a way of just not sitting down and explaining the Word to people who could care less what it really means because God did not give us the Bible to educate us, to inform us. He gave us the Bible to transform us. If you're not willing to be transformed, you may have a problem at that level. It is a spiritual book, but it's not a spiritual book in the sense that it is written in strange, mysterious language that cannot be deciphered except by special people. It is a book that God has given us, written in ordinary language, that everyone should be able to understand. It is not difficult. And the, the bottom line of hermeneutics, you all know that that's the science of interpretation, because I've taught that before. But the bottom line of that big fancy word is simply that the simplest meaning is probably the right meaning. You know, read it. What does it say? Uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, you can read some commentators and they'll say, well, there was this very short gate in the wall of the Jerusalem and Camels couldn't get through it without getting down on their knees. You had to kind of coax them through, and it was a difficult process if you came to the city from that side. And uh, But they could manage, and it would take, took a lot of effort. And, and, and you, can read, you can read many commentaries that talk about that particular situation, that particular gate. That's not what Jesus said. What did he say? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Do you know what a needle is? It's something you sew with. It, it's a little tiny slender thing with a point on it. It's got a hole in the back. And you put thread through the hole. Everybody knows what a needle is. you know what a camel is? If you don't, there's a couple on the float out there. You can go kind of get an image of a silhouette of a camel. A camel's a pretty big animal. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what he meant. There's no mystery here. And so, uh, you say, well, how do I know that's what he meant? Well, look at the reaction of the disciples. Well, Lord, who can be saved? I mean, like, that's impossible. Don't you know that? And Jesus said... With men, it's impossible. Okay, that's our first clue. He's not talking about a little short gate. He's talking about a needle. It's impossible with men, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, getting saved takes a miracle. And very wealthy people have a tougher time with the miracle because it's hard to bend the knee to Christ when you have so much. That's the point. It's not, it's not complex. 
It's intended to be plainly understood. And what I want us to take away from this paragraph in Peter, before I jump to a few in Paul, is I want us to understand that when we come to the Scriptures, whether we're studying Genesis and, and science in the Bible or anything like that, we have to begin from a certain starting point. And that starting point is that God compelled this whole book to be written. Nobody just decided to sit down and write up some stories. God compelled it to be written. And in the writing of it, He guarded and protected it by the Holy Spirit, so that what He wanted to communicate was communicated in plain language that everyone can understand. It's, it's straightforward, simple, unembellished language. When you have an obvious figure of speech, it should be obvious to everyone. I am the door of the sheepfold. You know good and well he's not talking about the board that swings on hinges to cover an opening in the wall. He's speaking in a metaphor. There's, an, there's, a, there's a, a figure of speech in use there. And those are obvious to us, just like they're obvious in the newspaper. They're obvious in the Scripture. But otherwise, when the Scripture speaks, it speaks plainly. And it should be something that we should clearly understand. For example, in Genesis, most Hebrew scholars, including some very liberal ones who don't believe a word of it is true, still say that the people of the day in which Moses wrote would have simply understood him to mean that God made the world and everything in it and the whole universe in six 24-hour days. Just like the sun goes up and down every day, which of course it doesn't. The earth moves around it, but we talk like that. What does the weatherman say? The earth's rotational axis in the morning will arrive. At, no, he says sunrise is at. Well, what's, he's a meteorologist. Doesn't he know the sun doesn't rise? No, that's how we talk. But the scholars say that, that it was plainly, plainly understood by the people of their time that he meant six 24-hour days. Now, in our sophisticated age, we say, well, of course, that couldn't be true, and, and that's not what was really meant. Well, what, what does it say? What does it say? God protected and guarded and guided the meaning of Scripture in such a way that we should be able to understand it. And if we're having trouble, we need to check out our relationship, not our reading ability. Because if you're literate at all, you should be able to understand the Scriptures. Now, I'd like you to turn over to 1 Corinthians with me for a moment. 1 Corinthians beginning in chapter 1, and then some of chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast from the Lord." What I want us to take from these couple paragraphs in chapter 1, as Paul begins to address the subject of the wisdom of this world, is that God has hidden His truth from rationalism. And what I mean by that is that people will not come to an understanding of the truth of Scripture by approaching it from an intellectual standpoint as if they could figure it out by their own ability. Now, I've told you that it is plainly written, and it is. But when people come to the Scripture and try to understand it, several things trip them up. For one thing, it says things they don't expect. It says if you want to be great, you should become everybody's servant. It says if you want to get ahead, you should go last in line. And and those kinds of things don't make any sense. It says if you want to preserve your life and make it count, you should die to all of your ambition and self-will. Well, that doesn't make sense. So first of all, people have a hard time understanding what it plainly says. And then they stumble over all the other things like, you can't save yourself, you need to fall on your face before God because you have sinned in a way that is unrecoverable on your own and you need to come to God and acknowledge that you need the cleansing covering of the blood of Jesus Christ from the cross in order to be saved as you repent of your sins and turn to God because you're helpless and there's nothing you can do to improve your status. 
And Paul says that's a stumbling block for Jews and it's foolishness for Greeks. That, that kind of thing just, it, it, it affects them not because it's so difficult to know what it's saying, but because it's so difficult to, to deal with our human pride. And then on top of that, Paul says that the Word of God, the truth of God, <clears throat> is hidden from people who are highly educated, who are um, prestigious, who have power and influence in this world. They have a tough time with the Bible because God has actually hidden His truth from the wise and prudent of this age, but He has revealed it to simple people. And Paul makes a a case out of their own experience at Corinth. He says, you know, when I preached to you and the gospel message came, that of all the people that turned to Christ in faith, not many of them were the highly educated, the very specialized, the very erudite of the community, the very prestigious, the powerful, not many of those people responded to the message. And there is a lesson there for us. As we study science in the Bible and and we begin to look at the Scripture in all of these terms, we need to understand that there is a great danger in the realm of academics. There's danger there. You know, when I was growing up, one of those first early space programs, was pretty cheesy, was lost in space, you know. And uh, they had this crazy little robot, and everyone's going to say, warning, warning, danger, danger. Well, every time you get near academics, you should hear that little robot going, warning, warning, danger, danger, because there is danger there. I believe very firmly that Genesis, in the temptation in chapter 3, that that is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that the risk in the tree and some of its appeal lay in the fact that if they ate of it, they would be smart. And knowledge gives you a certain ability to make decisions and to integrate information in such a way that you think you can figure stuff out on your own and it leads us away from dependence upon God. I want us to keep this in balance. I want you to understand that if we think that we are going to rationally approach the Scripture And with the right tools and the right equipment, we can figure this book out. You are entirely wrong. God reveals His truths to the simple, to the humble. We're not talking here about lack of intelligence or stupidity. We're talking here about a a humility that approaches the Scripture And unfortunately, many people that have moved on in the realms of academic study or in in power and prestige and, and accomplishment, those people have a hard time bending the knee. The truth is that people who have PhDs 
should be among the most humble people on the planet. They of all people, because of their privilege of exposure to vast amounts of information, they of all people should know how very little they really know. They should be very humble people, but they're not. Because the scripture also says knowledge puffs up. The more you learn, the more you think you can do. And I I wish that we could understand. For example, I, I said in the earlier hour, to have a Ph.D. means that you know a a lot about a very little. Those of you that have advanced degrees, you know what I'm talking about. As you begin to narrow your focus of study and you begin to home in to the point where you have chosen a Ph.D. in a given field and then you have chosen your specific uh, point of expertise and you have uh, picked your, your dissertation or your project or whatever it is that you're going to do, that no one else has done, and you're going to to home in uh, to the body of worldwide knowledge in that one specific field, by the time you're done, you are an expert in one point of knowledge in a vast ocean of information. And you know a lot about a very little. And you know very little about most stuff. I've seen people with PhDs that didn't have a clue in the world how their car worked. Other than if you put gas in it and turn the ignition, it it should start up and you should be able to get where you're going. But they didn't have a clue how it operated. They might not even have a clue how their toaster works, depending on their field. It's amazing. And people that have all of these advanced degrees should be very humble people. physicians who have the privilege of studying the human body should be among the most humble people on the planet. I mean, they should walk into a room just just communicating humility because they're so awed by the vast amount of information they cannot even begin to imagine. And the fact is that that's not often the case. Because the more we study, the more we think we know, and the more we think we know, the more independent we become, and the more independent and proud and arrogant we become, the less likely we are to bend the knee to God. And I do not want you to hear me say this morning that I am dissing education. But what I am telling you is, you and I as believers need to have a healthy fear of God and a healthy fear of of learning to keep those two in their right perspective because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and if you don't start there, you're not going to grow closer to Him through study. It requires an approach of humility. God will not subject Himself to your scrutiny in an academic way. He's not going to become a subject in your curriculum. He will not allow himself to be investigated that way. As if you could bring your mind to the subject of God. He expects you first and foremost to bend your knee and worship Him as Almighty God in total faith and trust. 
and then believe what he tells you because he is true. Otherwise, he will not enter the arena and play the game with you. He will stay back to himself and you will be shut off. Read that passage. He, you will be shut off from true knowledge. And this is also why I'm saying to you that we cannot argue people into the kingdom. I am hoping that our studies in Genesis will expand your understanding of the Bible. I'm hoping they will give you some confidence when you hear all this scientific stuff out there that that the data is consistent with the Scriptures. We don't have to be intimidated. But by the same token, I want you to realize you're not going to use this information to win people to Christ. Unless God opens their eyes. Do you see what he says here? This is uh, perhaps a little unsettling for some of you. But to those who are the called. God has to open the eyes of the unbeliever. God has to peel away the blindness. God has to give his Holy Spirit to illumine the understanding before a person can say, yes, that's true, Jesus died for me and I need a Savior. And the Bible is true. It requires the Holy Spirit. And so when we're talking to people who are very well trained and very educated, and when we're talking to people who aren't, we need to be praying for them above all else. Because unless the Holy Spirit gives them insight, they're not going to see. They think they've already got it figured out. And we're not going to make an impact. And then look with me in chapter 2 for a few moments here. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Notice what Paul says. And by the way, Paul was probably the most educated of all the writers of the New Testament. Paul was a Roman citizen. He was trained in in the classical Latin way. He was a student of Greek literature and culture. That's obvious. He had a great command of the Greek language. He was also kind of heir to the throne, so to speak, for the leading rabbi in Israel. That's apparent from his experience and his zeal and and different things that he says about himself. Paul was a man who was multidisciplined, multi-trained. He was a man of great wisdom and insight in, in all human terms. If anybody could have leaned on his uh, accomplishments, and Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3 as he gives his testimony, he says, I count all of that as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. And so here he says, I did not come in in superiority of speech or wisdom proclaiming the testimony of God. He could have. He had that ability. But he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. Why do you suppose Paul was in weakness, fear and trembling? I think his concern was that somehow Jesus Christ would not come through clearly. 
and that he wanted to be sure that that happened. I, I have a great sense of dependency upon God when I walk up here on a Sunday morning and stand in front of you. Because I know unless God speaks, you're going to go out of here very empty. I have really nothing to say that will help you. Unless God speaks. And that ought to give a sober person some pause. Or a sense of weakness and and trembling. Not stage fright, that's something else. I know about that too. But there should be a concern. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I didn't try to argue people into the kingdom. But in demonstration of the Spirit and power that your faith should not rest on mere intellectual arguments, the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, in this passage, Paul talks about the certain element called the mystery of the Word. And even though I have said to you that the Bible is written in plain language to be plainly understood, there there is the possibility that people will spend their lives studying the Bible and miss the truth. For one thing, the Bible was not meant to just educate us. It was meant to bring us into a relationship. It is not the end. It is a means to the end. We are the Alliance Bible Church in McHenry, Illinois. And if you go back to our roots, Marge remembers this because she are it (laughs) in our roots, back to the late 1940s, and you trace the, the history of the different pastors and teachers that have been uh, part of this church through the years, this church has always chosen people that are teachers of the Scripture, that love the Word, that are expositors. There's a love in this church for the Scripture. It's always been there. It's part of our DNA, as they say today. And yet it is also one of our greatest dangers. 
Because if you make a God out of the Bible, then you still have an idol. The Bible is a means to God. It is a a way to understand Him, but our calling is to be in a relationship. And He will use the Scriptures to teach us about Himself as we come into that relationship. We're not merely supposed to get Bible smart. We're supposed to know God. And when Paul said, I have counted all things as rubbish for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ... He included all of his training as a rabbi and a Pharisee. He he wrapped that all up under the rubbish category. And said, I want to know Jesus. That's my passion. Now, you will have the wrong Jesus if you're not in the Word. But we need to recognize that the Word of God is a means to an end. And here's what Paul says... He says, we speak Christ in a mystery. There are truths about the spiritual life that are in this book that you're not going to understand unless you have the help of the Holy Spirit to explain it. And he gives this analogy. He says, no one knows what's in the mind or heart of a man except the spirit of the man. I don't know what you're thinking right now. Some of you are probably thinking, I've heard this before. Some of you are thinking... I'm getting hungry. I wish I could get out of here. Uh, You could be thinking all kinds of things. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could attach electrodes to your skull and project on the big screen what's going through your mind? No. uh -uh. (laughs) That's not a good plan. (laughs) Okay, but you know what's going on in your mind. And Paul says, just like that, no one knows God except the Spirit of God. You don't understand the mind of God without the interpretation of the Spirit of God. But we have His Spirit. You see His point? Isn't that great? We have the mind of Christ. As followers of Jesus Christ, He has put His Holy Spirit in us, resident. He's the author of this book. And He's the teacher of this book. John says an interesting thing in his first letter when he says, Uh, You don't have any need for me to teach you or whatever because you have the Spirit and you all know. That's a pretty powerful statement. But what he's saying is accessible to every believer is insight and understanding into the Word of God because we have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ in His mind dwells in us. And then he says these very powerful words in verse... 13, and I want you to see that in chapter 2, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. I, I want to share my experience with you that I've had since, since I first really came to know Jesus Christ. And, and it's happened to me ever since, and it should also be your experience. It should not be unique to me. As I come to the Scriptures and approach them with humility, and before Almighty God confess that I am but a child and I don't really have any knowledge or ability to, to decipher all the truths of Scripture, 
And I say, Lord, teach me. What I find is that the Holy Spirit takes these spiritual words. These are the words. These are spiritual words. And He combines them with spiritual thoughts. He puts things in my mind that connect the dots for me of the Scripture. And what will happen is, maybe I was reading last week or last month in the Psalms or in some Old Testament, other Old Testament book or some New Testament book, and now I'm reading in Matthew, and the Holy Spirit says, you know what I said in Ezekiel? Well, that's the same thing as here. These go together. And you know what I said in Genesis? That goes with that verse in the Psalms, which matches up with this verse in Thessalonians, which fits this verse here in Luke. The Holy Spirit does that. He brings the mosaic together in ways that form a true picture. It is amazing to me, as I listen to what people write today, what Christians write I know that they have no clue what the Bible is saying. Because they're approaching it from a totally human perspective. And we must approach it from a spiritual perspective. Before God, in humility, we must depend on Him to teach us. Now, does that contradict what I said earlier about it being plain? It does not. Every sentence of the Bible in its context has a plain and simple meaning. And it's usually the most plain and the most simple meaning. But it is the Holy Spirit who takes all of those sentences and words all over the Scripture and puts it together in a picture of who He is and what life is about that really connects the dots for us. And friends, only the Holy Spirit can do that. We will not get there through rationalism. We will not get there because, okay, I have training in Greek and Hebrew, and now I'm going to get out all of my language books and my lexicons and and whatever, and I'm going to get the commentaries off the shelf and the word studies, and I'm going to figure this thing out. No, you're not. You're just going to bring sawdust out for people. It'll be dry and lifeless. The letter kills. But as you wait before God, He will teach you His truth. And then you'll find an amazing thing. Having arrived at it by the Spirit, it will always be logically true. It will always be exegetically sound. It will always fit the meaning of the passage. It will never violate the rules of interpretation. But you don't get at it through the academic channel. You get at it through the spiritual channel. And we need to recognize that God is calling us into a relationship with Him. And if we walk with Him every day, He will explain His Word to us. and He will put it together for us. And we will have insight into who God is and what our life with Him is like that will go far beyond the things that your commentaries and 
footnotes and reference material will tell you. Because he wants to bring you in and teach you himself. And I want to encourage you to do that. And so as we continue our study in Genesis and we continue to look at science and the Bible and we look at evolution and the origin of life and the age of the earth and all of those kinds of things, I still want us to recognize that we must approach the Scripture with faith. We must start out believing that God is true and every other man is a liar. And in humility, wait upon Him, and He will show us His truth. But He will show it to us because we have depended upon Him in humility. Father, I pray this morning that You would give us an attitude toward the Word that is one of reverence and awe, and an attitude toward You. And without disparaging education, Lord, I pray that if we have the privilege of higher training, that we will also approach that with fear and trembling and a great sense of reverence. That at at best we are gaining tools, but the fundamentals of depending on you in humility remain the same. And we must always believe you above all other men. For you speak truth to us. And we can count on you. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us to be passionate followers of Jesus Christ. First and foremost. And then explain him to us through your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.